Welcome back to Radio North. I'm Brita Green. Today, we have a story about family, about losing it, gaining it, and discovering it. And it all starts with a man named Mark. My name is Mark Nordling. I'm approaching 65, and I still have almost totally black hair. People accuse me of, of dyeing it. I never have, but I do have olive complexion, much more Mediterranean than, than Nordic. Mark's story comes to us from producer Hans Buto. Hi, Hans. Hi, Brita. So uh, why don't you tell us about this guy, Mark? So I met Mark through my uncle, actually. Um, Mark and my uncle had worked together some years ago, and Mark and his wife had gotten to know my aunt and uncle socially a little bit. And so over dinner one night, Mark started to tell a story about his dad. There were never any significant issues. This was my dad. I loved my dad. Mark grew up in St. Cloud, and he said that he and his dad had always felt... Well, here's how he explained it. We did not do a lot of what I saw friends doing together with their dads. We had a good relationship. Uh, it was, I wouldn't exactly say formal, and I wouldn't exactly say distant. I'm, I'm trying to find just the right word. He never once punished me with any kind of spanking or any physical punishment at all. So I wasn't afraid of him physically, but as a, you know, sort of a presence. But our story really starts in March of 2000, when Mark's dad died. At that point, it was just Mark and his mom. Mark picks it up from here. She had been dropping hints about, you and I need to talk. And there never seemed to be kind of the right time. Well, she arranged to go visit some relatives in Chicago. And I had to go for business, so I said, well, instead of flying, I'll drive and I'll take you to Chicago. Great. And I also added, this might be a good time for us to finally have this conversation you seem to want to have. Yeah, she said, that's a great idea. We had driven quite a ways. We were two-thirds of the way to Chicago, and we stopped for a quick lunch. And so we got back in the car, and almost immediately I said to my mom, uh, you know, we were going to have a talk, I thought. You know, you've been wanting to have this talk, and we haven't had it, so let's have it. And she said, that's a great idea. She said, you start. So I, I said, okay, I'll start. I said, you know, when I was growing up, I always felt different and out of place, especially with Pop's family. I called my dad Pop. And without even skipping a beat, she said, well, that's because you are no part Nordling. Bingo. You know, I picked right up on it. I knew what she meant immediately, you know, that obviously he was not my father. So I said to her, well, if Pop wasn't my father, who was? And she said, guess. Guess. So I guessed, and I was wrong. <laughs> so, you know, then she got mad. You know, and it was kind of like, well, what do you think I am? <laughs> you know, and I wanted to say, well... Um, we've already established that. We're just trying to narrow down the pool of candidates here, you know? So after, you know, she got a little mad, then she said to me, cryptically, which was her way of talking, well, you know, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And then she looked at me like I was stupid, like I hadn't been able to figure this out. And she said, well, your father was Frank Puglisi. It was like 
a movie where you're watching a safe breaker, you know, a criminal who's, he's got a stethoscope and he's got it on the safe and he's listening carefully as he turns the dial and it's like the tumblers all fell into place. It was like click and the door opened. It's just like everything made sense all of a sudden. When I was growing up, uh, Frank Puglisi was a family friend. Uh, I think my parents bought some insurance from him. He was an insurance agent. When I was, I couldn't have been more than about four, I had some kind of sickness or illness, I, I don't know what it was, but I was actually hospitalized. And I could remember being in that hospital and Frank came to visit me. Was my mom there? Was my dad there? I don't remember that part at all, but I remembered clearly that Frank had come to visit me in the hospital. So we talked a little more, maybe about when this happened or how it happened. The night was getting no information, none. And she cut me off, actually, with two things. One, she said, was, I've never told anybody. And of course, then I had asked, did Pop know? And that's when she swore, no, he didn't know. And then the second thing, what really cut me off from the rest of that day was, we've talked about this now and we'll never have to bring it up again. I came away with a lot more questions than answers, that's for sure. You know, it subsequently has come to me that um, everything was a lie. I'd been lied to and about for 50 plus years. Well, I came home from the trip with sketchy information at best. I decided I need to do some research. Well, there is something called the Social Security Death Index. I looked in the book and I found 30-some, maybe 40-some Frank Puglisi's who had passed away. The first one was the right one, just by chance. You know, I learned, you know, when he had been born, where he had been born, uh, when he died, where he died. And then it said, he's survived by his daughter, Marjorie Raftery, and her husband, John, of St. Petersburg, Florida, and 10 grandchildren. I went to the St. Petersburg phone book. I looked up John and Marjorie Raftery, and there is an address and a phone number. And I took it home, and uh, my wife, Joan, said, good job. She said, that's a really good job of investigation. She says, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> It might be the wrong Marjorie Raftery. She may have moved. She may have passed away. I could get a hold of her and she could say, go to hell. I don't want to be with someone in the family just because they're family. I had all sorts of reasons for not doing it. About every two months, three months, she would say to me, so have you decided what you're going to do about your sister? <laughs> and I'd say, mm, no, not really. And after a year, I got up one Sunday morning and I hadn't thought about it the day before anything. I sat down at the dining room table and I wrote her a letter, longhand. And I said, I'm writing this letter on the presumption that you are the daughter of Frank Puglisi. And if that's the case, I have something I have to tell you. And I showed it to Joan and she said, that's a really good letter. She said, I think you should send it as is. Don't change anything, but I have two suggestions. 
put in your email address, and secondly, put in a picture. The picture. The picture was absolutely no doubt. That almost made me faint. He is the spitting image of my Italian father. His build, his black, his black hair is even blacker than my father's was. Black curly hair. And it was, I was just stunned. I was just, I'm feeling it all over again. Just so excited. So very excited. Dear Marjorie, I'm writing to you under the assumption that you are the daughter of Frank Puglisi. When I was growing up in St. Cloud, Minnesota, Frank and Alice were friends of my parents, Irene and Roy Norton. First, I would say I wish it had happened when I was 20 instead of 50, but it didn't. So there's no point stewing about that. It's never too late to do the right thing. You know, I've gone through periods where people will say, your mother didn't have to tell you, you know, you should be glad she told you. And I've gone through periods of doubting her motives for having told me. Did you really want me to know or did you just want to get it off your chest? You know, and, and I could admit to periods of anger about that. And I finally decided, that's stupid. She told me when she didn't have to, and I'm glad she did. So I don't care why she did it. I'm just glad she did do it. Undoubtedly, this is a surprise for you. It certainly was for me. I'm enclosing a picture of myself, and I was raised being told I was three-quarters Swedish heritage and one-quarter Irish. But no one ever believed me. People could never believe I wasn't Italian, and now I am. There's much that you and I could share, and I really hope we'll have the opportunity. Thank you for reading my letter. The first thing I did was send off an email to him saying, when can we talk? The subject line was, wow. And she started out by saying, I just read your letter and I am so excited, all caps with six exclamation points. I just smiled and was over the top joyful for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I emailed her back and we back and forth a couple times and, and we agreed that we would talk on the phone the next day. And we talked for two hours and, and we agreed we were going to try to meet. Party takes over in Philadelphia's convention hall, the site of the recent Republican and Democratic conventions. Henry Wallace and his family draw loud cheers from 3,000 delegates. Both my mother and Frank were involved in Henry Wallace's campaign for president in 1948. And there was some sort of political meeting or gathering of some sort in the Twin Cities when we went through my mother's things when we were moving her out of her apartment into the nursing home and we actually found a single sheet calendar sheet for February 1948 
with a day circled on it. So all I can guess is that, you know, that was the day, nine months before I was born in November, when this occurred between my mom and Frank, he was not married, but had a whole string of girlfriends at that time, occasionally two or three at the same time, according to Marge. Um, my father liked the ladies. Was this a one-night stand or was this an ongoing relationship? I don't know how deep a relationship this was. Yes, I think my mother was in love with Frank. Yeah, I, I don't think it was a lifetime love affair. I think it was more casual. She wanted to take my sister Marcia and me and run off with Frank. Mark's mother would have left her husband for him. And Frank was, oh, no, 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 no. He wanted nothing to do with this. I think he thought, uh, you just stay with your husband, that's fine, and I'll just go on with my life. You know, he didn't want any lasting commitment out of this. He didn't want to raise two more children. I tried to imagine being a married woman in 1948, pregnant with another man's child. And somehow, well, you know, I was going to say decided to soldier on. I don't think she decided that. I don't think she had any choice. She just did what she had to do. I found a bunch of pictures from, it must have been my baptism. You know, my mom's holding me and she's smiling and, and there are pictures of, Roy, my dad, holding me, and he's smiling, and, and, you know, however it came to be and however they agreed tacitly or openly to go forward, they both seemed, at least in these pictures, to be making the very best of it they could. That's a testament to both of them. So we made our arrangements and we flew to St. Petersburg and suddenly it occurred to me, my God, you know, we're about to meet my sister who I've never seen before in my life. And when he got off that tram... I had not seen a picture of her, but I mean, there was no doubting which woman in this crowd of people was my sister. It was like seeing my dad. It was absolutely amazing. We both agreed there need be no DNA tests. I mean, he was my brother. There was no, no hesitation, nothing. And she rushed up and, you know. We just hugged and hugged each other. Our kids and friends, people are saying to us, you're not going to stay with these people, are you? I mean, come on, you don't know them. We didn't stop talking for three days. It was wonderful. He brought a bunch of pictures. I pulled out a bunch of pictures. And we just, on and on and on. We didn't go anywhere, really. We, I guess we went out to get an ice cream cone or a drink or something. But pretty much it was just a gab fest for three days. Take me through your life up to now. and OK, you take me through your life up to now. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning. The summer after I met him, we went up to Minnesota for the Puglisi picnic. So we go to this family reunion in Duluth, which was at a park 
the parking lot was kind of elevated and then you would walk down to the picnic grounds from this elevated parking lot. And most of the people were already there and were walking down the stairs. And it was like I was a rock star or something. There were all these little old ladies literally crying. <gasps> it's Frank! Oh my God, he looks just like Frank! There were, I don't know, a hundred people at this picnic and all these little old ladies were like wanting to touch me. And it was like, whoa, you know, I didn't expect anything like this, you know. They were just flipping out at him and uh, how much he looked like Frank. One of Marge's uncles, he said to me, can I call you Frank? He says, you look just like Frank. I'm going to call you Frank, you know. I said, go ahead. You know, <laughs> I didn't mind the attention, you know. That's true. You know, it's just, it was quite an experience. I mean, I, you know, I have a fairly good size family on my mom's side. And so it wasn't the numbers, it was just the approach to things. These people don't withhold affection. You know, and I had grown up in a, in a really staid atmosphere. My daughter was probably seven or eight. And she said, how did grandma and grandpa ever get together? They sure don't seem like a couple. And I always thought that. They always seemed to be just a little bit off. I never in my whole life saw them kiss on the lips. They ended up being married 66 and a half years when my dad passed away. I remember when he, when he retired, I actually wrote him a letter and told him that I was you know, very proud to be his son, because I was. Everything he had, he had worked for very hard. I didn't always agree with him, but I was very proud of what he had done. And I found out later when he went to the nursing home, I don't know, 20 years after that, he carried that letter in his wallet the whole time, ever since I had written it. Through this experience and meeting Marge and being so accepted there, I feel a lot closer to the family I already had. Finally understanding and accepting how important family is, it um, just seems all so much more important to me than it used to. Frank obviously affected me physically. You know, he is my physical father. I look the way I do because of him. I probably have struggles with weight because of him. But on a more emotional or lasting basis, more important basis, I guess I'd call it, he hasn't affected me directly. I didn't have any kind of a father-son relationship with him. But he did bequeath me March. A lot of the benefit I've gotten from this whole thing is because of March. So that's how he's affected me. Uh, Roy, Roy raised me. I mean, I had no reason to believe, of course, that he wasn't my dad, wasn't my father. He treated me well. You know, he paid for me to go to college. You know, he certainly didn't begrudge me anything. There was never any sense of, well, you're not my son, I don't need to. There was none of that. A lot of what I am, I owe to him, you know? So, I, um, I owe, I owe a lot more to Roy Nordling 
and the Frank Buglisi. A big thanks to Hans Buto for this piece. Hans produces a podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. It's honest conversations about difficult things. It's just getting started and it's going to be great. You can find that show and Radio North on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review. It means a lot. And you can find a picture of Mark and his sister Marge and much more on our website, radionorthpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening.